Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Joining me again this morning on Next on the T, I'm your host Chris Mascaro, and today I have the honor and the privilege of talking with a PGA Tour legend, a guy who should be in the PGA Hall of Fame, two-time major champion, and perhaps the greatest putter of all time, Mr. Dave Stockton. Mr. Stockton is going to join me in uh, in just a moment, but before we get started, I want to kick off the show like we do every single week here by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We thank you for all the things that you do, your daily sacrifices to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who serve or have served in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the folks at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor and a privilege for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. We also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio, as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio as well. I also want to give a special shout-out to our good friends, Mike Kovacs, Ben Kerr, Mark Modeski, and the rest of the great staff over at LastWordOnSports.com. Check them out online and on Twitter. Their site is fantastic, contains great content across every sport. Their staff of writers are wonderful. You're going to love going to their site every single day for your sports news. If you haven't been there yet, check it out and then bookmark it. Again, lastwordonsports.com. Plus, if someone's dragging into the mall or the grocery store or you're just simply tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the player.fm or Stitcher app for your smartphone and take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. Our show is brought to you by the great folks over at Kyven Foods. Former Bengals and Falcons tight end Reggie Kelly has created a wonderful array of products. His salsas, sauces, and spices, they're all natural, and they're going to liven up every meal or recipe that you have. So while your friends at your next home party, upcoming holiday party, or your next tailgate party, by adding Kyven products to everything you're going to put on your menu. Check them out online at kyven82.com. That's kyven, K-Y-V-A-N the number 82.com. All right, now joining me on the Kyvan Foods guest line is Mr. Dave Stockton. Let me remind you about what should be a Hall of Fame career. He's from San Bernardino, California. He attended the University of Southern California and earned his bachelor's degree in general management. In 1964, he won the Pac-10 men's golf individual title and was an All-American. Later that year, he turned pro. 
His first PGA Tour victory came in 1967 at the Colonial National Invitational. All in all, he won 25 times on tour, 11 on the PGA Tour, including the 1970 and 1976 PGA Championships, and 14 more wins on the Champions Tour, including three majors, the 1992 and 1994 Senior Players Championship and the 1996 U.S. Senior Open. He teamed with his son, Dave Stockton Jr., to win the Champions Challenge in 2000 and in 2008. He played on two victorious Ryder Cup teams in 1971 and 1977 and uh, captained the victorious 1991 team. Mr. Stockton is widely known also as a putting genius. His book, Unconscious Putting, has gotten a 4.5 star rating on Amazon.com and is a must-read for every golfer. So be sure to pick it up uh, for the golfer in your life this Christmas. I am both honored and thrilled to have him next on the tee with me this morning. Good morning, Mr. Stockton. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Chris. Good to be with you. So I know you're out hunting this morning with your grandson. How's it going so far? How you doing? Well, the ducks and geese are winning. Uh, the hunters nothing, and the geese and ducks are flying around. Uh, it's been it's typical California. It's probably going to be 85 here today, and uh, you know it's not that we haven't had the weather. We had one storm up north that pushed a few birds down, but uh, so far it's just enjoying the great outdoors at the moment. <laughs> well, you know, at least at least you got good weather for it. I hope uh, I hope you start winning, and I appreciate you taking some time away from it to join me. Um, no problem. Let's start at the beginning. I read I read you actually start. You were a, you know, a heck of an athlete. You played baseball, basketball, golf growing up, but a unfortunate surfing accident took you out of the other two sports. Was was golf your first love, or had that not happened, might we know know you now as a, either a great L.A. Dodger or perhaps a great member of the L.A. Lakers? Uh, neither of those, but, uh, I did like baseball and basketball a whole lot more than golf. My dad was a professional. I lived on a golf course, but you know, in the fifties, golf was almost a sissy sport. And so basically what I would, you know, until I hurt my back when I was 15 and at that point in time, uh, I was no threat to be, I was better at baseball than I was basketball, but, uh, was never going to go into that direction. But I started working on my game cause I had to, cause I had the only way I was going to be able to afford a scholarship to university. And uh, it worked out well. I mean, here I am. I just turned 73, 73 last week and uh, can still play if I want to. In fact, I'll play with my son Ronnie and the father's son in December. So it's a great sport. You meet a lot of interesting and really neat people. Yeah, no doubt. I, I also read, you, know, you mentioned your father, your father, Gail, who was an individual conference champion at USC himself, once conducted an, actual, an, an exhibition with Walter Hagen. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, I mean, it was in 37, uh, four years before I was born. But my dad was a really good good player. There just wasn't any tour in the 30s. And uh, he he was the pro, and he figured out it didn't take but about a year and a half to realize the days he wanted to play golf were Wednesday, Saturday, and Sundays. And as a pro, those are the days he had to work. So he, got, he went into the sporting goods business, which was great for me. At the time I grew up, all I knew, my dad was owning a sporting goods store, which gave me carte blanche to do any other sports but my dad could flat play i mean i won the club championship once at home and he won it nine times and uh i shot 164 there he shot 463 so it was just his time when he was born in the you know and then when he played in the 20s and 30s there was just no tour to go on so he was my only teacher i mean basically he taught me how to putt and chip and all the rest of the stuff when i was young i uh when i was six or seven since it was only two doors down from our house i'd go down i'd challenge if i saw somebody on the green i'd go challenge him 
and it's kind of interesting to look back on the fact that, you know, that's 60-some-odd years ago, and basically I've never had to change anything in my putting stroke. I mean, golf has evolved so much now with the, with the way they can teach you, with the, the track man and all the other stuff you can study and you learn all these different things. But when it gets to putting, it, that's a whole different matter. And I think that's one reason that Ronnie and Junior and I have been really successful in the teaching is that we teach a, a mental aspect to it. We want you to visualize what you're doing and, and so on and so forth. In fact, if you were going to send me a video that you wanted me to critique, critique your swing and everything, your putting stroke, I would want to watch your routine. I'd want to see how you walked into it. Are you? Can you see the line? All these different things. I don't even care about seeing your stroke, and that's completely different. And you can't do that in the long game, obviously. But in the short yeah. game, it's more mental than it is physical. Hmm. So I, and I certainly want to expand on that here here in just a minute. But you talk about you know routines. I read in the same article that your father gave you one rule that you're never supposed to violate regarding practice. Do you mind sharing what that was? Well, there's a few of them. I mean, basically, when I practice, I only practice with two balls or one. Um, because I broke my back when I was younger, I couldn't practice long periods of time. Um, uh, there, there's about six or seven different things, one of which is I believe in being a right-handed player. My left hand is my direction hand. And uh, so, consequently, I don't do anything with my left hand except that's my my direction hand in putting. And most people, if you're right-handed, make the right hand the all-important hand. It controls the power and the speed and also the direction with really not a very good, you know, your left having not any use in in the stroke whatsoever. Um, But my, my dad, basically, if I had one thing he taught me, it was a spot putt that I use, which is one of the things McElroy uses and and that's so much as when I come back from the when I come back from the the hole, I'm coming back to the ball just before I start my stroke, I'm picking a spot one inch in front of the ball approximately. It's not for alignment. It's not on the line I'm gonna roll it. But what I'm doing is not coming back to the ball because if I come back to the ball as soon as I touch the ball on my forward stroke of my putter, I'm probably gonna move. And it's just it's just it was just a, just a way for me that to make the whole world one inch putts and I'm I am awfully good from one inch I don't miss too many from one inch. <laughs> right, and you mentioned Rory a couple of times, and I know uh, there were some references you know to things that he learned from you um, going into some of the major events in this season that actually you know made him you know helped him calm his mind because we have so many swing thoughts kind of going through our mind all the time, but he picked two key words that helped him, you know, settle himself and, and, and perform really well. Can you share what those were? Yeah, it was interesting, and I had no idea what he was going to he was gonna say. Uh, we were in uh, Vancouver on a family vacation while he was playing the British, and uh, he came out. The, the one word he was using was process, and the other was spot. And right. the spot referred to what he's using in the putting, and the process was what he was doing on the long game. Again, again, not thinking too much. I mean, the the average, well, I tell you one thing my dad did that brings me back to my childhood. He never let me read golf magazines, and he never, he wanted to keep it simple. He'd tell me something, and it took me maybe 30 minutes to change my grip or whatever he told me. And then, you know, for the next two weeks, he wouldn't tell me a thing. And I was frustrated because almost like I had a mean father. But psychologists say it takes three weeks to make a habit. 
And that's the problem with most people when they're working is that they tend to, uh, they they well, chips tend to last about three days. And you give yourself two or three weeks, you can't remember the, you know, your fourth tip ago. It just doesn't work. I mean, you're, you're trying right. so hard. I mean, when, in the putting, what we do, we call it a signature approach. And we basically have, uh, we have you sign your signature on a piece of paper, and right below it, look at it, because that's your correct signature. You just did it, and then try to duplicate it slowly, and you won't be able to do the first letter. And the reason you can't is that when you sign your signature, it's in your subconscious, and that's what you have to do. You've got to just see it and let it go. That's how you instinctively shoot a gun or something. You know, you get going. If you're shooting a shotgun, you keep swinging, or if a rifle, the breathing, and you're real steady with it. But you, it's not like you're thinking about a whole lot of things. Because if you do, you're not going to be steady. Yeah, that's it. I'm writing that down. That's great advice. That's fantastic. One of one of the other things that I read that he, you know, about practice, your father instilled in you was never hit more than five balls in a row with the same club. Why was that? Well, you've really got into this. You you've really got some great questions. He he wanted me to picture things. I mean, if I if I started with five wedges, I didn't know if I was going to get a four wood next or a seven iron. But if he saw three, let's say I hit high draws with a seven iron, he'd say, okay, let's see a low straight one, or let's see a high fade, or let's see something different. So I hit five shots, and a lot of times warming up in professional tournaments, the people behind the ropes had to think, geez, Stockton's sure not hitting it very good because he's hitting it every direction. <laughs> and literally I was because I'm, pr- I'm planning and picturing these shots that I'm going to be hitting. And when you're playing a tournament like the Masters at Augusta and you know you're going to be hitting a 8 or 9 iron on, in my case, a 7 iron on 12, the par 3, and you play, your caddy tells you where the pin is on that day. And like 4 or, well, for instance, 16, the other par 3, uh, I've hit as much as a, as a little as a 9 iron there and as much as a 4 iron there because they move the teeth. 50, 40, 50 yards back and forth, and they move the tee. Right. A lot of times they move the tee way up and they move the pin way up, and the next day it's a total shock because they move the pin pin back and the tee back, and you, you're about a 50-yard difference. And so consequently your caddy tells you that as you're warming up, and you, you hit a couple of shots during your practice round roughly knowing what shots you're going to have when you get in competition. And, you know, it's just, it's just like when you go out to play your own course, as you're going along, be aware of where the pin was. If you're going past the seventh hole, be aware of where the pin is, you know, as you're playing number four. Because when you turn around, a lot of times you can't gauge it right. Of course, we got all the gadgets now that tell us exactly to a foot, but it's still, it, it gives you an opportunity to plan your round ahead of time, and that's basically what we do. It's, we're not, you're not trying to physically do something necessarily, but mentally, you know, you can always be successful if you picture you know, what you want to have happen before you go about doing it, you know, rather than the guy that says, oh, geez, I hope I get lucky and I hope this goes good. Well, it's not going to. But if you say to yourself, and that's one for your listeners out there, one of the things people, it cracks me up, is you ask them where they're aiming. They're aiming right at the flag. I say, well, that's great. I said, uh, how many straight shots are you going to hit in a day? And he or she are going to go, well, you know, not very many. Well, that's good. So as soon as you swing at this thing, it's going to go offline left or right. It's much easier to play a fade, even if it's only two or three feet, but play it to do something, not just try and hit a straight shot. I mean, right. I know there's no, some that's... pros. I know some pros nope. that do that, but 
but that's I'm not a barrier to teach somebody to try to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, as a as, as a weekend hacker, I'm with you. For me, I, I I'm aiming at the middle of the green, if it because it is going to go, it's going to go one way or the other. So I'm always aiming for the middle of the green. That way, at least I've got a putt at it. Yeah, well, well people don't realize. I mean. There's two, two different shots. You hit a perfect drive, farther than you've ever hit, 295 or something, right down the middle, pins in the middle, and without knowing it, the next shot's the one you're going to miss, okay? But if you hit a lousy tee shot and you got you only hit it 240 and you're in the left trees, the trees ahead of you tell you what kind of shot you have to hit, low, high, left, right, whatever, but it right. forces you to do something. Those become the good shots. But the one in the middle of the fairway, and you get lackadaisical, and you're so proud of yourself, pumping yourself up, you get this great tee shot, and you don't think for a couple of minutes of the height you want to hit this next shot or the direction that it's going to go, that's the ones you mess up. Go back a little bit in time. You you became close to another great Trojan golfer, PGA Tour legend Al Geiberger. He became near and dear to my heart when my son and I were over at Augusta a couple of years ago. Mr. Geiberger was kind enough to stop during the par three contest, walked over to my son and handed him an autographed golf ball, which was incredibly nice. But talk about your relationship with Mr. Geiberger. Well, Alan was my closest friend on tour. He was my idol, really. Uh, he graduated USC in 59, and that was the year I graduated high school, and I followed him into USC. Uh, we were in the same fraternity, Kappa Alpha, and uh, I wasn't nearly as good as he was by any stretch of the imagination. Alan could flat play. He had physical problems throughout his career uh, that precluded some of the stuff, but he 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 was so well-liked. I mean, he had one stretch that he didn't win for seven or eight years, and then he won Las Vegas and uh, the Sahara Tournament, and it was interesting because people would be playing and people come up, Alan, come on, have a great year. I know you haven't won in a couple of years and it had been five or six years, but because of the class he showed and the way he acted, uh, you couldn't tell. Uh, he, he has a, his, one of his greatest memories was the fact that when he shot the 59 at Danny Thomas in Memphis, uh, he and I right. were paired together. In fact, in fact, my signature's on his card, which he thinks is just hilarious. I don't, I don't know what part of the day he liked the best was the fact that, uh, Jerry McGee was the other player, and we're playing the backside first. And, and Memphis was in terrible shape. We're playing lift, clean, and place because I mean it was not in good shape. The greens were terrible, and uh, Bermuda greens. And uh, the first hole, I should have known something was up because Allen made it from about 45 foot for a birdie. And I had like a 15, 18 footer for birdie, and I three putted. And <laughs> through the first 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 nine holes, McGee and I were on the tenth green, and McGee's hit it two. And Allen's in the fairway is about, I don't know, 30, 40 yards short of the green. And I'm up there. I got on in three. And and I'm like three over at the time or something. And McGee says, and he says, this is wild. He says, Allen's six under. And we've played we've played ten holes now. And he's been closest on to the pin three times in ten holes. And yet he's just killing us, right, because he's making every yeah. single putt. He promptly chips it in. So now he goes oh. from, from six under to eight under, and the game's on, right? And, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And, of course, he he just flashed. And I called my wife, Kathy, and she said, how did you play? I said, not good. She said, what did you shoot? I said, 77. She said, well, what did Alan shoot? And I said, 59. And, and Kathy goes, 59 what? I said, you heard me. And Alan's standing right there. <laughs> he thought it was priceless. So, and I came out of the, I came out of the interview area and just, 
little old lady was there, and she looked at me. It looked like the lady from the, the Wendy's commercials. And she looks at me, and she says, son, this must be one of the greatest thrills of your life. And I've just been beat by 18 shots. And it was all <laughs> I could do to tell her, not exactly, ma'am, not exactly, you know, and I walked <laughs> off. So it was, it was Alan's high point. It wasn't one of my high points other than the fact that I was so proud of him. I mean, the last putt he made on the last hole was you'd like to have a three-footer for birdie but he had like a 12-footer, and it broke, I'm going to say, six inches left to right, and left to right side, wow. but for it. And it went, it went nowhere but the dead center of the hole. I mean, it was it was classic. So he no, he, he has been really, he's, he's been a great friend. And like I said, if he was with Spalding, fine, I was with Spalding. If he was with Munsingware, I was with Munsingware. I just followed him. Whatever he said, I, I you know, whatever he did, if it was good enough for Alan, it was good enough for me. And, you know, he, he and I played Colonial. He... He told me how to play Colonial. He'd never played it any good at, at all, and I think it shocked him when I won it. And, uh, of course, later on, he won the Tournament Player Championship. The players there are near major tournament there at Colonial, and I finished second, and he won it. So we won the CBS Golf Classics a couple of times together, which you alluded to earlier. So right. it, it, he was, he's been an influence on my life, and it, it gave me a real positive role model to 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 be around and everything. These are the world's nicest guy. No, I, and I couldn't agree more with that statement. So let's talk a little bit about some happier times for you. Now, you, you turned pro in 67. Three years later, you win your first major, the 1970 PGA Championship at Southern Hills in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You were the only player to finish under par. You were one under, winning the tournament by two strokes over Bob Murphy and Arnold Palmer, who was paired with you in the final round. And you had kind of a, a wild final round that day. What sticks out in your memory about that? Well, it, it went back to, well, what what stuck, stuck in my mind, I just finished reading uh, uh, a book on psychocybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. And hard book to read. My dad wanted me to read it. But I took out of it the fact that you have to be aggressive in anything you do. And the other thing is you have to picture ahead of time what you want to have happen. So I got there on Monday, played a practice round, and I was picturing coming into 18 with some amphitheater, 40,000 people watching me and rooting for me. And lo and behold, on Sunday they were. I mean, it kind of showed the, the power of positive thinking there. Uh, but it, uh, that week was interesting. Palmer... I learned something three years earlier from Don January, uh, four years actually, about how to play with, with Mr. Palmer. And he's a very fast player. And it was one of the only people I ever played slow with. And that morning on Sunday morning, I've got a three-shot lead on Arnold playing with him. Like you mentioned, Kathy is going to have Ronnie 30 days exactly later. So she's stuck in the clubhouse listening to everybody that are rightly looking for uh, uh for uh, Arnold to win, because if Arnold wins, this is going to be Arnold's first major that he gets. And so consequently, uh, you know, I didn't get much sleep that night and (laughs) went out there and a guy on the fifth hole, I three-putted, missed about a three-foot putt, and this guy uh, said to me, he said, uh, you got him now, Arnold. And I looked at this guy, and I was so hot, and I went birdie to the next hole, eagle to the following hole, Double bogey five, the next one, and then birdie nine. And I went from a three-shot lead to a seven-shot lead. And from that point in time, all I wanted to do was see how fast I could get in, you know. Right. And it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a springboard for me. There's the fact that, you know, 
and that's why I've always rooted for the underdogs. I mean, I everybody, yeah, you'd like to see Lee win another tournament or Rory win a tournament or, or Mickelson win a tournament or Tiger. Um, and that's, a, that's, you know, to their, you know, benefit the people root for them and how they handle the gallery. But I've always, I know how much that first major meant to me as well as the second one at Congressional, and it changed my life. And so it, it was it was an interesting week, and when I won the second time, I knew that I was going to be a Ryder Cup captain because there were certain friends of mine, Bobby Nichols, Guy Berger, who won the PGA but weren't asked to be Ryder Cup captains. And so, you know, the first one in Southern Hills is important, but the second one at Tal- in uh, Congressional in Washington, D.C., was was more more important to me because it, it meant the first wasn't a fluke, and it also meant I was going to be a Ryder Cup captain. You alluded to this a moment ago, Mr. Stockton, but you know the PGA was the only major that Mr. Palmer never won. Were you conscious of that during the final round, being paired with him, that that was the, the kind of the one he needed to add to get to the career Grand Slam? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but it was the one I needed to win one. So, you know, <laughs> I, a lot of people go through life, I mean, you know, like the people going against Tiger all those years. Tiger ate up a whole lot of other people's majors, got 14 of them, so that took a lot away from a lot of other people. You right. know, I feel really good that under Nicholas's watch, I got two majors. And it makes, you know, it made me feel proud that I accomplished what I did. But, I, yeah, I, I knew that would make Arnold the Grand Slam, you know. But because Arnold, Arnold's to our game, he's the one that made our game. I mean, he and Jack and Gary could have started the big three along with Casper, could have been the big four, and it could have been golf for those four guys and not anybody else. Right. But supported the tour and they supported everybody else and it made, and, you know, and, and Arnold, I mean, what an ambassador. I mean, that's, he is so special because, you know, he looks right at you. Most everybody he looks at, they know they're just, he's, he's looking just at them. It's an incredible, incredible deal. You talked about your second PGA championship in, in 76 at Congressional. Now, this time you beat Raymond Floyd and Don January by a stroke. Now, Rain had pushed that final round to Monday, and you made a 15-foot putt for par on the 18th hole to actually win that championship and avoid the playoff. Now, so you, 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 certainly the greatest putter of all time. And talk about being able to control your emotions and your nerves when you've got a final putt like that. Well, I mean, everything's relative. First of all, the rain out was highly important because I played five holes on Sunday and they rained out the whole round, but I was three over the first five holes. Then they rained, which is unusual to rain out an actual round, but they did. So the next day I go out and start over again. I'm two under the same five, five shots difference. So that's basically the reason I won. I came down the the last hole and I was playing my usual steady golf. The last fairway I'd hit was number 11, and I was nursing this one-shot lead the entire time coming out of everywhere and, you know, not straight or anything. And, you know, I got it up and down out of a bunker on 17, and on 18 I just took three-wood off the tee. Well, I hit three-wood right down the middle. I was so proud of myself. When I got down there, I had 220 to go, and I'm going, well, that ain't going to happen because there was the water right there. So I hit a four-iron, and I got it down 60 yards short, 55, 60 yards short, and wedged it on the 15-foot. And it stopped quicker than I thought. I actually... It actually hit it just the way I wanted to. It just stopped a bit. But the putt was like inside inside right. Greens were perfect. Uh, I actually didn't see the ball go in the hole because I knew three foot in the hole or four foot in the hole that it was going in. I mean, I had it dead center. Uh, my son, Ronnie, who's done a lot of the stuff that we've 
collaborated on some of the writing and stuff. My, I, I got the putt. When I marked the ball into the time I spoke, it was less than 15 seconds. Wow. And it was an extreme, extremely important putt, but it was just like, okay, mark it. I'd already looked at it from the side. I knew what it did. So I just had to get behind it, see it, and walk into it and let it go. And that's the whole thing. I mean, that's what I allude to when we work with people. I, our biggest deal is changing your routine so your routine becomes successful. And whether you're driving the ball or, or putting or chipping, you know, your routine is going to be what's going to free you up. I mean, people aren't going to go out and, and shoot pool and not, not move the cue stick back and forth, or you're not going to just hold up a dart and without moving it back and forth, kind of like somebody fly fishing or something, getting the feel back and forth. That's all you need, and let it go. But people get just absolutely paranoid, and they're trying so hard. In fact, I'm glad I mentioned that, because two words we, tr- we avoid is, number one, trying, which when you try to sign your signature slowly, you can't do it. And the other is we don't want to hit a ball. We, you can hit a driver, but we want to roll a putt. So we want to feel and roll a putt. We don't want to try and hit it. It's dramatically different. Right. So now here's the amazing story to me, Mr. Stockton. So that, that, that final round gets pushed to Monday. You had been previously booked for a corporate event that Monday night with American Airlines and made a commitment to be there, and you weren't going to let those folks down. Do you mind sharing the sequence of events from the time that putt drops to what happens later that night? Oh, well, yeah, it was interesting. I, I was, I, because I usually book, and that's, uh, I, at that point in time, I was doing close to 80 corporate outings a year. So after a term at the finish on Sunday, I'd do a corporate outing on Monday. This happened to be American Airlines, and. I finished, uh, did the interviews and the, around the green, and then, then we went inside for the press, and then we went down to the locker room, and that's where President Ford called, which has been an interesting week because Mud, Kathy, and Ronnie, and David, and Junior, and I had gone to the White House on Monday and gone through every, house, every room in, that, in the White House. It was fantastic. Wow. And so he called. In fact, Kathy became the first woman into the congressional men's locker room because President Ford wanted to say hello to her and congratulate her. Um, and he was a good friend. So, I mean, that meant a lot. Well, we got through, and it was like 7.15, and so I called my contact at American and said, I'm through now. Are you? Is there anybody still there? He said, absolutely. I said, well, I'm heading over. So I brought my big cardboard check for, you know, a fantastic amount. I think it was 45000 or something. You know, kids nowadays play for a little more than we did, but it was. A, I thought it was an impressive check. So I had the check with me, and, I mean, we sat there till probably 11 o'clock at night just asking questions, just having a great time, and it turned out it was a good day both ways because they gave me my full fee for just being there for a couple of hours. So it was <laughs> it, it was a full day, but that's kind of kind of what I did. I You alluded to the fact that I'm not in the Hall of Fame, and the reason I'm not, right. although a couple of guys now have won less on the tour than I did, but, you know, two majors, I've been an interesting case because there's like 10 categories, and I'm in every one of them number of wins, you know, majors, all this different stuff. Well, you know, I've, I've only won. They they counted back from 11. They discounted a team championship, and they they uh, uh, got me down to 10. Well, most of the guys win 16, 17, 18. Now, David Graham's got in because he had worldwide wins, but he'd only won eight times. So, and Chi-Chi less. You know, they, they got different cases. In my case, what what's hurt me is the fact that I really gave a lot to playing the pro-ams and doing this corporate stuff. So Monday and Tuesday, I'm always out doing something else. 
And, you know, that that doesn't bother me because I know there's an awful lot of people that I've affected. And now, you know, I've had three careers, one on the regular tour and thought I'd retire. And then all of a sudden here comes a senior, and that was just a gold mine. That was a hoot. And then get hurt, and then all of a sudden, you know, start teaching. Seriously, I'd always taught. But, you know, four years ago in 2009, uh, five years ago now, started that started working basically the teaching when I had rotator cuff surgery and I know my dad's looking down thinking I really finally got it right because you know when you win and you're a champion you you have to be selfish you really do and I feel like I'm really giving back I mean for me to walk into the you know right. locker room now and or like go to the PGA this year you know I sat at Rory's table not knowing he's going to win the tournament four days later at the past champions dinner and he's just come back with the British Open trophy. In fact, Junior and I had our picture taken with Rory in the locker room there at La Hall this year. And it feels great to be relevant in my age and basically, you know, pass on this knowledge that my dad taught me. And it's been it's been a real treat. It really has. And the, the people, the President Ford, so on and so forth, uh, it's a life much better than I would have ever envisioned. Oh, you're you're an absolute treasure to the game of golf. There is no question about that, Mr. Stockton. You you talked about the Ryder Cup and you play you on two winning teams and you captained another. When you look at how the U.S. has fared, you know, over the last ten, fifteen Ryder Cup matches, what you know, if anything, in your mind needs to change to help the U.S. become more successful? Well, I think it's pretty simple, and I mean, I, I was in another one too because I was an assistant captain along with Olin Brown and Raymond Floyd for Paul Azinger in 2008 at Bahala. And it's been interesting. I've been in four Ryder Cups, and we've won all four, not because I've been in them, but, you know, at least I've been a part of winning and not and not losing. And right. the, what, what needs to happen, and Mickelson, you know, may have said the stuff at the wrong time, but he said the correct stuff is that I, I still think Azinger in 2008 was the best job any Ryder Cup captain has ever done his thought of the pod system using what the Navy SEALs do and breaking a 12- or 13-man squad into three- or four-man groups, which is what Azier broke his 12-man squad into three three squads of four. That's why he had three assistant captains. And so I had my four that I was controlling, and, and you know, it let him be above the, the fray, and, and we would give him our input, and it worked out a whole lot better. And so... Uh, what needs to happen, and Mickelson alluded to it, is that what happened in 2008 was an eye-opening experience. I mean, Faldo never saw it coming. Azinger did just a fantastic job. And what's happened, the difference is the Ryder Cup, the, the captains and the policies are determined by the PGA of America. It's their show. And Kiowa Mine in 91 was the first one that ever made money for them because they'd finally gone slightly commercial, and now they've gone much more so. But what they do is every two years you have a different captain, and that captain that that captain basically likes to tweak the different things. And what Mickelson was trying to say is this pod system and how you, how you pick the people and how you put them together. Uh, and it's like any uh, group of people. You want, to, you want to put them together mentally. So they feel comfortable. It's not necessarily how they play physically in our game or our sport. And so the task force now, what's happened, is that you've got three or four, and I know Azinger just got through talking to PGA within the last week, 
I don't know exactly. I know it went well, but I don't know exactly what's happened. Um, they've got the, the next three or four captains possibility-wise in, in Mickelson, Wood, Stricker, and Furick to be on this uh, advisory council along with three PGA. So because before we had no idea how they picked them. For instance, I I was the captain in 91 at Kiowa. The next time I was asked anything about a Ryder Cup, about like who should we pick as captain and this and that and the other thing, was 2004, 13 years later. Azinger was the captain in 2008, and he wasn't asked anything for the next, wow. you know, six years. I and mean, that just doesn't right. make sense. I mean, I debriefed for a day and a half and then never, never was talked to. So it, it didn't make sense. And... I know some favoritisms. I have to the, my life. I can't figure out why Larry Nelson was never a Ryder Cup captain. You know, came out of Vietnam and, and had not played golf till he was 24, and all he does is win yeah. three majors, two PGA championships. For some reason or other, he gets bypassed. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen because the 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 European Tour, for instance, they run it. So, you know, like McGinley, their captain this year was putting Dukes on the Frenchman with McDowell. In practice rounds, pair in practice rounds, and pairing in the tournament, so they got paired together and and they became friendly and and that's the best thing to do. But our tour right. runs our tournament, and the PGA doesn't do anything. So you kind of try to get these guys bonded in a week and a half. It's not going to work very good. And it, the mm-hmm. system showed us flaws this year when Herschel didn't get in after winning the the uh, uh, FedEx, and Chris Kirk right. didn't get in and should have got in. Uh, right. And that those are the things this committee is going to have to have to fix. And having those players, the ex captains and the future captains, I think it's going to work really good. And I think we're going to, when we convene again in two two years in in Minneapolis at Hazeltine, I think you're going to see a completely different result. I saw a picture of you holding the uh, the Ryder Cup trophy after your victorious you uh, you know, event in '91. I yeah, so I, yeah I, see, I see a picture of you ankle deep in the ocean, looking like you just came off the golf course with your blue blazer on. Did you jump in holding the trophy? Uh, no, I got thrown in. I got thrown in by Paven and a couple of the others. Totally shocked me. They just all of a sudden <laughs> grabbed me and started running. And of all the things, you know, a lot of times the Ryder Cup stuff didn't fit too well. Uh, and that, that blue one fit really good. But I tell you what, it wouldn't have fit. Billy Barty by the time I got out of that ocean an hour later that started to trunk up. <laughs> so it was it was a cool picture. It was a really cool picture and it was it was a great time. It's the biggest honor of my life for Kathy and I to be picked to you know, they run up the American flag and I know this program goes to the servicemen out there and we really right. respect and admire all you do for us. I mean, they 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 play the national anthem and they run that flag up. That golf ball looks like a marble, I guarantee you, because it's it's hard enough to hit it anyway, but you start playing for your country, it's a whole different thing. Yeah, I bet it is. It's a couple more before we let you go, Mr. Stockton. I know you've you talked about Phil Mickelson, and you've worked with uh, with Phil on his putting, which he seems to struggle with from time to time. Period. You know, particularly the the shorter putts, which I think you know makes a lot of us golfers nervous. What have you told to Phil to you know help? You know him through the through the same process. Is it the same things you you've shared with Roy, or is it something different? Every everybody's different. We don't have a particular method. You can take a look at people. Rory tends to be too fast, and you slow him down slightly. He doesn't take any practice swings. Uh, 
and uh, like that. Mickelson tends to be slower and tries harder, so consequently some of the short ones he moves. Uh, he it's just it's just the way things are. Uh, two different people. McElroy just lets it go. He is great on the spot, which he says one of the two words he uses. He comes back there to the spot, rolls it over. Mickelson has a hard time, harder time seeing the spot. He works with Pels also, and it, it's kind of intriguing the fact that part of my routine, Pels has a lot of different routines in mind, and he has, you know, he'll have Phil hit, you know, 30, 40 balls from three or four foot around the hole in a circle, just continually going around, which to me is that's backwards counterproductive to what I do. But that's just, you know, Phil's trying to take the best of two really good instructors, and that's what he that's what he does. And uh, he's he's at the point where he he knows what I would tell him. It's just a matter of what he feels comfortable doing. For for our listeners here on the Armed Forces Radio Network, Mr. Stockton, you do a lot of work with charities. In particular, some of the things I saw on your site are the Medal of Honor, Medal of Honor Golf Classic and the Stater Brothers Charities, the Dave Stockton Heroes Challenge. Talk about those events and the wonderful work you're doing to give back. Well, you know, it, it's not something publicized. I mean, I, I was 4F because of my back, and so I never served in the service. My father ran a bomb plant. In fact, had the unique thing that he ran the bomb plant, and he got his he lost his watch one day, and he actually got it back in 1946. It was discovered in a bomb that had been dropped on Tokyo and hadn't gone off. And my wow. dad got his watch back, and it was kind of interesting. Uh, but in uh, 2000, and, let's see, 2002, I was invited to go to the. They were having the Medal of Honor convention in Riverside, California, and I was invited to go a good friend, Jack Brown, Stater Brothers Markets, uh, invited me to go, and Kathy and I ended up sitting sitting there and uh, got to meet. There were over 200 living right now. There's like in the high 70s that are living, even though they've had a few new ones added. Uh, but I got to meet them, and I asked, I asked Ron Ray, who was their president, who lives in Florida, uh, I asked him if they do anything with the golf. He said, no. I said, I'd love to do a... a clinic for your group at your next convention. Well, the next convention was at, uh, in Congress at, uh, outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, Lansdowne, and uh, they had 12, 12 guys come out, 13 guys come out. We had a great clinic, and we played and everything, and they did. I just hooked them because in the end, five years later, we're doing it at Boston, at the TPC Boston, and we have, we have 30, 37 guys playing. And uh, we got clubs for them. They got bags. They got their service, uh, you know, their whatever service they were in, Marines, Army, Navy, whatever. Uh, they got the different bags with their name on them. It says when they received, the date they received the Medal of Honor. Uh, it's just been a cool part. So I've become very good friends with them. We've done it for a long time. And uh, I feel like I've given a lot back. Certainly a lot of them are a lot better golfers. Uh, than they would have otherwise been. But, again, that speaks to what our sport is like. You know, the Larry Nelson that comes out of Vietnam that had never played, and all the guys listening and gals listening, if you haven't played, that doesn't mean you can't be a really, really good golfer because you're highly trained if you're in the service. And I'm here to tell you they say golf's 90% mental. And just it's it's true. I mean, it's just that's all it is. It boils down to the fact that, that you if you mentally prepare yourself, 
you're gonna you're gonna be able to play this game. That, that you know, it's just it, and it, it's fun to see the guys that have disabilities. Just because they have disabilities doesn't stop them. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to be able to spend the time with them. Now, speaking of a real pleasure to spend time with you, have been an absolute gem. I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show this morning, Mr. Stockton. Tell our listeners how they can follow you both online, your website, and over social media. Uh, well, anybody, you get a hold of me at davidstocktongolf.com. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm out there um, looking forward. I don't do much on the Champions Tour anymore, but certainly are on the LPGA and the PGA Tour. Um, but, uh, yeah, they can, they can get on, you know, I don't do Facebook. I'm, I'm the old school, right? My kids do and everything, but, uh, right. we'll look forward if, if they're around any tournament, I hope everybody comes up and says hello. And I want to thank you because I've never, I've never heard anybody have, I don't know who does your research, but you, it's a good thing I didn't do anything bad or you would have brought that up too. So. <laughs> I, appreciate I do my it. own it's research, but, you know, and I feel like that's the right thing to do out of respect for your time. Well, you did a heck of a job, Chris. I enjoyed talking to you anytime. I'll be glad to do it again, okay? Thank you, Mr. Stockton. Thanks for taking time away from your hunt and your grandson to join me. It was a huge thrill to be with you. I hope, again, I do. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. I'd really love to. That would be fine, Chris. Thank you. All right. Take bye. care, Mr. Stockton. All the best to you and your family. Okay, bye. Good night. Wow. You want to talk about a huge thrill and a huge privilege. Mr. Dave Stockton, boy, was just one of the absolute greatest, you know, players of all time. I can't I, I can't imagine how the PGA of America has not put him in the Hall of Fame. He has done so much, you know, he's he's achieved so much, you know, out on both tours, on the on the regular tour, a couple of majors, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, 11 or 10 victories they give him credit for or not, 14 more. Uh, on the senior tour and uh, everything he has done to help, you know, be an ambassador for the game of golf and winning the Ryder Cup and being, you know, part of, you know, two winning teams and another as a as an assistant captain, as he talked about, you know, how how great a resume do you have to have to get into the PGA Hall of Fame? I don't know, but his his certainly uh, belongs there, and I uh, I hope uh, we hear very soon about his uh, his election and induction. I will certainly be looking forward to that. All right, before we close up shop, I want to let you know about a, a great new book. You've heard me talk about it over the last several weeks. It's called A Golden 18, written by Roger Schiffman, and the photography is by one of our friends and one of the greatest photographers anywhere on the planet, Jim Mandeville. Jim, I'm sure you know, is the director of photography at the Nicholas Companies. The book showcases some of Mr. Nicholas's greatest course designs. The stories about the courses are great, and the photography is simply outstanding. In fact, it's so good you're going to want a second copy of the book so you can take some of the pictures out of the first one and get them framed. To get your copy, go to nicholas.com and hover over the products and partners and then click over uh, books and videos. So again, hover over products and partners and then click on books and videos. If you love golf and studying photography, you're going to love this book. All right, everybody, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks once again to Mr. Dave Stockton for being such a great guest and generous with his time this morning. And we thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you the most. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazare and our announcer, Joe Lajanusa. That show airs every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find it live on Blog Talk Radio. You can also hear us on here on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Uh, and also from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time every Friday night on Boost Radio. 
So please join us. We've got you know great legends from around the NFL and CFL joining us every single week. Uh, please check out both shows next on the T here and uh, Thursday Night Tailgate on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. You can find us also online, nextonthetea.net and thursdaynighttailgate.com. From there, you can stream for free or download any of our archived episodes by going on there. We've got them all listed up there for you. So please, you can stay up to date with also who some of our future guests are going to be. Thanks once again for, uh, for choosing to listen to the show today. I really appreciate you the very most. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better, like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participate in Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.